Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, Season 2, Episode 10, The Fall of Hong Kong, December 1941. In the winter of 1941, an undertrained, ill-prepared token show of Canadian force arrived at the British garrison at Hong Kong. They were prepared to help defend the island against the advancing Japanese Imperial Army. By Christmas of that same year, nearly 2,000 Canadians would be dead, wounded, or taken prisoner in a defeat that not only shocked Canada but shook the foundations of the British Empire. A reminder, you can always find us on Facebook and SoundCloud if you search Cool Canadian History. You can also, of course, find us on iTunes Podcast. You can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can, of course, find us on our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. And at the bottom of our page, you'll see a donations tab. This donations tab is courtesy of PayPal, and it makes it very easy for you to donate to the podcast. All donations are extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this podcast. Now, on what is very much the opposite side of the world to London sits the former British outpost of Hong Kong. Since 1842, Hong Kong had been a crown colony of the British Empire, a major economic center for British trade and influence in the Pacific region. Now, in 1937, the Second Sino-Japanese War erupted, and the Japanese Imperial Army conquered large swaths of Chinese territory to protect Hong Kong as a free port and to save its citizens from the marauding Japanese soldiers. The colony was declared a neutral zone by its then British governor. This, unfortunately, would not have the effect the British hoped, and by 1941 the Japanese were bearing down on the island garrison. Now, several British studies had concluded it would almost be impossible to defend the island. In fact, in 1940, the British had all intentions of reducing the size of the garrison. Yet by 1941, this decision was reversed. You see, the British hoped that a large garrison would deter further Japanese aggression. As well, the British wanted to show support to the Chinese army fighting the Japanese under Chiang Kai-shek. They were engaged in a brutal struggle fighting on the mainland of China. Thus, the garrison on Hong Kong was not only left, but actually reinforced. 
Now, anyone who had studied the defense of Hong Kong understood full well that it was almost impossible to defend. The Japanese Imperial Army was much too strong. The garrison was not nearly the size large enough to stop a Japanese attack for very long. The island itself, geographically speaking, was not suitable for an adequate defense. The island garrison lacked specific types of equipment to render certain types of effective methods of defense. For instance, anti-aircraft weapons were sorely lacking. Now, in the summer of 1941, Hong Kong was garrisoned by about four battalions of British infantry, so roughly speaking, just under 4,000 soldiers. The garrison commander at the time was actually a Canadian, Toronto-born General Grasset. Now, he was a Canadian serving in the British Army, which was fairly common amongst the higher-ranked Canadian professional officers. Now, his tour of duty as garrison commander came up in August 1941. That's right, several months before Hong Kong fell, a very lucky man. Now, after his tour of duty ended, Grasset returned to Canada. And while in Canada, he had dinner with his old high school buddy, General Harry Criar, who was at the time chief of the general staff, essentially the most senior Canadian military officer in the country. Now, we don't know what was said at this dinner, but shortly afterwards, Criar went on to convince the war office in England to use Canadian soldiers when looking to increase the size of the Hong Kong garrison. The war office obliged and formally asked Ottawa for troops. Now, here you might be asking yourself, why would Ottawa send troops to what seemed like a hopeless situation? And that's a good question, and that deserves an answer. You see, by 1941, most of the Western Allies were engaged in combat in some form or another. Now, Canada had its Royal Canadian Navy involved in the Battle of the North Atlantic, and of course the Royal Canadian Air Force had been involved in the Battle of Britain. But in terms of a land commitment, Canada had yet to get involved in the war. Now, for the most part, Canada seemed quite content to avoid what it thought would be the high casualty rates of infantry combat. The country was much more inclined at this point to participate in the naval and air war, which they saw as creating less casualties, while also acting as a conduit for supplies from the then-neutral United States of America. As well, Canada was a safe geographical platform for an air pilot training program known as the British Commonwealth Air Training Program. But by 1941, the public, politicians, and military officials wanted to see Canada do its part on land. There was sort of echoes of the success of the Canadian Corps from World War I, and this cast a long shadow over thoughts of Canada's land participation in this world war. Thus, be it pressure from Grasset, Criar, or even the Canadian public and politicians who wanted to see Canada involved in a land fight, it was eventually decided to send two battalions to Hong Kong. This numbered roughly 2,000 men, including two female nurses. The two battalions that were sent, however, were sadly ill-prepared for what was to come. The Royal Rifles of Canada, which were from Quebec, had a large contingent of Francophone soldiers. They were chosen for their ethnic mix and their garrison service in Newfoundland. The Winnipeg Grenadiers, from Winnipeg, were chosen, frankly, due to their garrison service in Jamaica. Now, neither battalion had seen any real action, and in fact, both were seriously undermanned. The government decided it would top up the manpower with soldiers that had yet to find a unit or be assigned to some sort of place within the army. Now, one officer wrote about these men that were being handed over to the Winnipeg Grenadiers and the Royal Rifles of Canada. He wrote, and I quote, 
they were some of the yellowest scum that any unit could be cursed with. He said that the army training centers sent us their sweepings, not worth the powder to blow them to hell. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of the soldiers that were quickly recruited into these battalions lacked some of the most basic training. Neither battalion had participated in any battalion-level exercises, and they certainly had never worked together before. Thus it was this cobbled-together, under-trained force that was labeled Force C, and commanded by Brigadier J.K. Lawson that was shipped to Hong Kong to face the might of the Japanese Imperial Army. The soldiers set sail in October and arrived at the garrison on the 16th of November. It should be pointed out, however, that even the most well-trained veteran troops could not have withstood the Japanese onslaught at Hong Kong. It was not a natural defensive position, and the Japanese had massive numerical superiority. Now, the Hong Kong garrison by November of 1941 numbered around 14,000 troops, including the Canadians. There were mostly British units, but there was, of course, some Indian units, and as well native Hong Kong units, and the Canadians. There was also a civilian population of one and a half million people. Now, many people actually believed that what faced them was an ill-trained, undermanned Japanese force. A common racist belief at the time was that the Japanese were not, in fact, good soldiers when fighting white men. There was this belief that the Japanese had only had success fighting other Asian peoples. Some, in fact, even thought that the Japanese had no intention of attacking the British outpost after all. Keep in mind the Japanese were not yet at war with the British. Yet it was on 8th of December, only eight hours after the attack had finished against Pearl Harbor, that the Japanese launched their assault on Hong Kong. The British, and thus Canadians, were now officially at war with Japan. Very quickly, the British realized the tenacity and skill of the Japanese army when by the 13th of December all the mainland defensive positions had been overrun, Demoralized British troops were now streaming onto the island in preparation for what seemed like a hopeless last stand. On December 18th, the Japanese launched their attack on the island proper, and by the 23rd of December, the island garrison was split in two. Small pockets of defenders were attempting to hold out. With very little air cover or artillery, water began to run out. The fighting got so intense that hand-to-hand -hand fighting ensued. Even staff officers at Canadian headquarters found themselves engaged in close combat fighting. Lawson, that is the original commander of Seaforce, had been given command of the island's West Brigade defenses. He decided to make a last stand himself. In fact, his last message to his commander was, quote, I am going outside to fight it out, end quote. With a pistol in each hand, Lawson engaged the Japanese and was eventually killed. Interestingly, he was in fact buried with quite some honor by the Japanese, who recognized the courage of this Canadian commander. The fighting was so intense 
and hand-to-hand combat was erupting everywhere, that soldiers who may never have expected to engage in such ferocious combat suddenly found themselves having to fight for their lives. One Winnipeg subaltern wrote a story about his engagement with a Japanese soldier. I want to read it for you here. He writes, I was able to knock his rifle and bayonet out of the hands of one of the Japs, and with my new weapon managed to run through another of the enemy. Unfortunately, I had difficulty withdrawing the blade, and while endeavoring to do so, I was lucky enough to catch the flash of a sword being raised to strike. Quite subconsciously, I jumped for my assailant, grasping the blade with my right hand and circling his neck with my left arm, forcing his head against my chest. While struggling in this fashion, we both lost our footing and rolled down a small slope for about ten feet. I failed to notice I had forced his steel helmet down over most of his face, and the net result of a terrific uppercut was a sprained thumb for me. I had completely forgotten that I carried a pistol up to this moment, and in something of a frenzy I endeavored to reach it. Now complications arose here, for I found, after inserting my right forefinger through the trigger guard, the cut I had received on this finger when I grasped my enemy's sword blade had deprived it of the necessary strength to squeeze the trigger. However, I did manage, and pressing the pistol to the base of my opponent's neck, finally ended the struggle. As this anecdote tells us, things were getting very, very desperate indeed. Now, Japanese soldiers who had dressed as Chinese workers had in fact infiltrated all over the island and were wreaking havoc in the rear of the lines. So you have these fifth column Japanese soldiers in the rear, while the defenders are facing Japanese soldiers in uniform to the front. Now, small groups of British, Indian, and Canadian soldiers attempted to hold off overwhelming Japanese numbers. All civilians could do was hide or flee. On the morning of the 25th of December, the Japanese entered St. Stephen's College, where a British field hospital was set up. This included British, Canadian, and Indian troops, female nurses, doctors, medical staff, and civilians. The Japanese set about killing and torturing wounded prisoners, the medical staff, as well as raping the nurses. This was indicative of what was going on all throughout the island, because as discipline broke down amongst the Japanese soldiers, an orgy of violence was inflicted upon the civilian population of Hong Kong. Murder and rape became commonplace. As the remaining troops of the Winnipeg Grenadiers and the Royal Rifles and other desperate defenders of the British outpost prepared for a last stand inside their barracks, a call to surrender finally arrived. The Japanese had suffered 2,100 men killed and wounded in the fighting on the island. Nearly 300 Canadians were killed and 500 were wounded out of the 2,000 who had arrived. This was an atrocious casualty rate of 40%. Sadly, This was only the beginning of the suffering for many of these men. Those who survived marched into Japanese prison camps where they would remain until August of 1945 when the war with Japan officially came to an end. Another 260 Canadian soldiers would die under atrocious conditions of execution, starvation, torture, and hard manual labor in these Japanese prisoner of war camps. After the war ended, one Canadian prisoner of war told a story about how their brutal camp commandant opened the gates and told him that, I quote, the war is over and now we are all friends again, end quote. And the commandant released a pig into the yard and the Canadian soldier said, I don't think it had time to squeal before it was in the pot. 
What's incredible is that in any detailed study of this battle, it becomes clear that Seaforce fought incredibly well against terrible odds. For years, the story was that Seaforce was completely overrun and that this undertrained, ill-equipped force of Canadian soldiers didn't really do much against the power of the Japanese military. But more recent studies have shown that, in fact, Seaforce put up an incredibly resistant fight. Sadly, it was still a defeat, and even more so a defeat that saw Canadians suffer some of the worst privations that any prisoners of war could go through. It also certainly begs the question... What real purpose did it serve sending the Canadians to Hong Kong, defending an island of the British Empire that had little hope of holding out? A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on SoundCloud, and you can find us at our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com, and of course you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. I want to thank you for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Take care.